0: Walang pambaon, wala kaming pangkain, kailangan magtrabaho lang. Yung kita ng benta sa dyaryo, enough lang na pambili ng bigas. That time, bigas lang tapos toyo, o minsan asuka. From grade 5 hanggang high school, ganyan ang buhay namin. Initially very sad, but eventually a very beautiful and successful story. And praise God for the success that God gave Bernard. And Bernard is now living a different life. Burner's story is one of the good and inspiring before and after stories that we've loved to hear. And today, we will also talk about another beautiful story, and it's the ultimate before and after story, and it's the story of every follower of Jesus Christ. Before that, let's do a quick review. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 14 of Ephesians, Paul blesses our gracious God for blessing us with redemption and rich inheritance in Christ. From verses 15 to 23, Paul then prays that God would give the efficient believers the spiritual understanding to fully grasp everything that God has done for them in Christ. And today, we will be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And once we truly understand this section, it will make us to have more sense as to why in chapter 1, Paul was just overwhelmed with the praise for the grace of God. And it will be further explained why Paul repeatedly described God's grace as being rich. Here in chapter 2, we will learn about the story of every believer and a follower of Christ. We will look at the believer's past, the believer's present, and the believer's future. Now let's go to our text in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10 and invite you to open your Bibles with me and read along. Now here's the summary of our passage. We were dead in our sins and destined for destruction, but our merciful and loving God saved us by His grace and made us alive in Christ. We were dead in our sins and destined for destruction, but our merciful and loving God saved us by his grace and made us alive in Christ. Let's unpack this truth. The first, the believers passed. Ephesians chapter two, verses one to three. And you were dead in your offenses and sins in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all, previously lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest. Notice the tenses that Paul used here in these verses. They are all in the past tense. You were dead. You previously walked. We too all previously lived. And in these first three verses, Paul takes us to our B.C. days, or that is before Christ days. He describes our past spiritual condition before Christ. And this is our story before we got saved. And it's a story that all of us share in common with the rest of humanity. Notice the three ways that Paul describes our before story. We were dead in our sins. We were disobedient children. And we were destined for God's wrath. And let's take a closer look at each of these. So the first, we were dead in our sins. Verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses, and sins. There is probably no clearer statement on the sinfulness of man in the New Testament than this. You see, when we were born, we may be physically alive, but we are spiritually DOA, or we're spiritually dead on arrival. What does it mean to be dead? Chapter 4 verse 18 tells us that the human race is excluded or alienated from the life of God. That is being dead, and that's being dead not just physically, but spiritually you see, to be dead means to be separated. In physical death, there's a separation of the soul from the body. Similarly, in spiritual death, there's a separation of the soul from God. And this separation from God, who is the source of life, resulted in death. Now Paul tells us why we were dead. We were dead in trespasses and sin. And the idea behind the word trespass is that we have crossed a forbidden boundary. We've crossed the line knowing that it was wrong, but we chose to to do it. On the other hand, the idea behind the word sin is that we have missed the mark. This term is used in archery. It's failing to hit the bull's eye. Spiritually speaking, sin is missing God's mark, and it's failing or falling short of God's perfect standards. As John Stott clearly explains these concepts, trespasses speaks of a man as rebel, and sins speak of a man as a failure. Before God, we are both rebels and failures. You see, Paul is making a contrast here. And here's what Paul says to the Ephesian believers, which also applies to us today. Before we came into being Christ, we were in sin. And because of this condition, we were dead. Before we got saved, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Before Christ, all of us were like zombies, like the living dead. And this reality is our greatest problem. As one preacher said, man's trouble is not that he's out of harmony with his environment. And man's trouble is not that he can make meaningful relationships. Man's trouble is he is dead. Because of sin, there's no spiritual life in us. We were disconnected with God, with other people, and with the rest of God's creation. Now, here's another thing. Not only we were dead, we were also disobedient. We're disobedient children, verses 2 to 3 in which you previously walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all previously lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest. This was our second condition. We were children of disobedience. Here in verse 2, Paul says that we, or there are forces that pull us, lure us, compel us to go in the wrong direction what are those first there's the world the course of this world is not the way that god intended to be but we are walking in its way many times what the world teaches its values and what it approves and disapproves are opposed to god's standard for example scripture prohibits premarital sex because it's immoral but in many movies either international or local ones what do you see premarital sex is celebrated and even expected The way of the world is the exact opposite of what God says in His Word. Second, there is the Prince of the Power of the Year. This is one of the titles given to Satan. Being called a prince indicates that Satan has a certain level of power and authority. You see, Satan and his demons is always at work to negatively influence people. And their goal is to keep people away from God. Satan aims to get people to doubt God, believe the lies, tempt them to sin, ruin themselves, and harm others. And Paul will talk more about this in chapter 6 of Ephesians. And the third force that pulls us in the wrong direction is the most significant force of all, and that is our own sinful nature. We live to satisfy the lustful desires of our flesh, and the flesh refers to our fallen human nature that separated us from God. Paul says that our internal urge to sin works with the external influence of the world and Satan, and this deadly triple combination leads us to disobey and sin against God. Now look again at the first part of verse 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you previously walked, according to the course of this world. Paul says, in which you previously walked. In this letter, Paul used walk eight times, and by walk he means your way of life, how we behave, and how we make our life's choices and look also at verse 3 he said among them we too all previously lived using these terms dead walk and live paul did a play of words here and he says to the ephesian believers and to us you were dead in sin because you used to walk and live in it in other words paul says you were dead unto god because you were living for the world the devil and your sinful nature you have no life because you walk away from God and walk the path of sin. The point is that we were dead in our sins and disobedient to God. And these first two conditions lead us to our third condition. And that is we were destined for God's wrath. We were doomed and we deserve God's judgment. Verse three, among them, we too all previously lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath just as the rest. Again, notice Paul's contrast here. In chapter 1, Paul says that in Christ, we received God's lavish love. Through Christ, we were adopted into God's family and became God's children. But before that, what were we? We were not children of God. Instead, we were children of wrath. Meaning, we were children doomed to destruction because we rightly deserve God's wrath. And why is that? Verse 3 tells us that we were by nature... Children of wrath. By nature means that sinning against God is natural and innate in us. To say it in another way, we are sinners by nature. We sin not just because of what we do, but because of who we are. We usually think of a person as a sinner because he did something wrong. For example, we say a person is a thief because he steals things. That is true in one sense, but it goes deeper than that. As the Bible explains it, a person steals something because it's his nature A person steals is a thief at the core of his being. And stealing is just an outward expression of his internal person. And this truth is what we need to understand. We are sinners not because only of what we do, but primarily because of who we are. You sin because you are a sinner. And we are sinners by nature, and that is why we sin. And since God is holy and he hates sin, then all of us are subject to his righteous wrath. Again, this is our grievous condition. You and I, including all of humanity, are dead, disobedient, and destined for destruction. Now imagine if God is the most powerful being who exists and he aims all his weapons against you. How could you survive? There won't be any hope of escape. And what you only have is a fearful expectation of judgment and of the raging fire that will consume us being God's enemies. And that is the bad news. And Paul tells us that all of us have this condition as our common starting point. All of us are dead, disobedient, and destined for destruction. But praise God, our story does not end there. Despite the bad news, here is the good news. And what is that? If you are in Christ, this condition is your past. You see, Paul here was reminding the Ephesians of their past. And as believers, it is essential that we also not forget our past, our story before we came to Christ, our before story. And we'll understand why so as we continue with our study on Ephesians. At this point, I invite you to think about your life. Does this condition describe your past or is it your present? This state of being dead, disobedient, and destined for destruction. Is this your past or is this still your present? Now, if you think this condition is still your present, let me share with you the good news and the solution to this problem. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 tells us, but God, but God. These words are perhaps the two most priceless words in the scripture, but God. One author rightly said that these two words are overflowing with the gospel for sinners like you and me who are dead disobedient, and destined for wrath. These are the two most encouraging and hopeful words we could ever hear. But God means that our situation is hopeless, yet God intervened. And what did God do? Verse 4 to 6 tells us, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Connected to this verse is another amazing but-God passage, Romans 5, 6-8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As a result of the two words, but God, we who were dead children of wrath became living and loved children of God. And this brings us to the first part of our after story, and that is the believer's present. The believer's present. Ephesians 2, 4-6. But God, being rich in mercy because of this great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. Because God has intervened. Here now are the believers' present position. Here are the things that God did for us. God made us alive. God raised us up. And God seated us in the heavenly places. Notice how God did all these things. And the key is Christ. Through Christ, with Christ, in Christ. God made us alive through Christ. God raised us up with Christ. And God seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ and all of these blessings were made possible through Christ Jesus our Savior and King now if you notice this truth echoes the lessons we've learned about the spiritual blessings that we receive in Christ in chapter 1 of Ephesians Paul is saying here that if you are in Christ whatever happened to Christ also happened to us if you are united with Christ whatever is true about Jesus is also true about us so when Christ died We died with Him. When Jesus was raised up from the dead, we were also raised up with Him. Because of Jesus, we are now spiritually alive and connected with God. Because of Christ, you and I are now alive and connected to God's purpose and will. And even though we may die physically, but we have the security that we have eternal life in Christ. And when Christ comes back, you and I will be raised up just like Himself. Friends, this is our present reality. God made us alive together and raised us up with Christ, and we are seated with him in the heavenly places. Christ now is seated at God's right hand as a king who rules over all creation. And the same is true for us today. God also seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. This phrase, heavenly places, is repeated several times here in Ephesians. It refers to the spiritual world, and it's a world we cannot see as opposed to the earthly realm, which we can see. And these heavenly places are as real as the earthly domain. Now, there is a dark side to this heavenly realm, which belong to Satan and his evil spirits. There is an ongoing war between the forces of God and his angels and against Satan and his demons. And Paul mentioned this war in Ephesians chapter 6. Nonetheless, we know that God will ultimately win in the end. Now, what does this being seated in the heavenly places mean since we are still here on earth? Being seated with Christ means that you and I are already co-reigning with Christ over God's creation. Ephesians 1, 20-21 God raised him, Christ, from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly place, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in one to come. Through Christ, we as his church have been given power, authority and dominion over all things. And when Christ returns, we will fully reign and rule with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Not only that, to be seated in the heavenly places means that this world is no longer our home. We may be in this world, but we are no longer of this world. Our citizenship is now in heaven. So in this world, you and I are just travelers and aliens. Now, what's the implication of that? How then should we live our lives? Like Paul, the Apostle Peter also urges us to no longer live according to the standard of this world. Instead, we are to live for God's glory. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God the day of visitation. Friends, think again of all the wonderful blessings that God has given us. All things that happened to Christ happened to us. We were dead, but God raised us up to life. We were children of wrath, but God loved and accepted us. We're fallen humans doomed for destruction, but God seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. And what do we call that? It's called grace. Look at verse five, Paul says, by grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. And what's the reason behind God saving us? Why did God make us alive in Christ? Verse 4 tells us, God being rich in mercy and because of his great love. The Bible says the primary reason that God saved us is because of his great love. If you think about it, we give God no reason to love us. You and I were sinners and rebels while God is holy and he hates sin. There is no compatibility between God and us to begin with. And yet, God chose to love us. Because of God's great love, He took the initiative to love us even when we were unlovable sinners. And God saved us even when we deserved God's wrath and judgment. And this is the main point of our passage and message today. We were dead in our sins and destined for destruction, but our merciful and loving God saved us by His grace, And made us alive in Christ. We were dead in our sins and destined for destruction, but our merciful and loving God saved us by His grace and made us alive in Christ. The first time we hear about God's love here in Ephesians is in chapter 1, verses 4 to 5. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. And we see it here again in verse 4, chapter 2. God being rich in mercy and because of His great love. Now, God's great love includes both mercy and grace. Mercy and grace are closely related, and the Bible uses these terms interchangeably, but these two words also have differences in meaning. Mercy means you don't get what you deserve. In the context of our passage, it means God is withholding His wrath that we deserve and not giving us the punishment that our sins deserve. Grace means that you get something that you don't deserve. God is giving us what we do not deserve, His gift of forgiveness, eternal life. By grace, God no longer considers us as sinners and children of wrath. Instead, God sees us as his beloved children and all of these things we don't deserve. And let me add one word here, justice. Justice means you get what you deserve. Now you may ask, how can God be just, merciful, and gracious all at the same time? You see, here is the dilemma. If God is just, then he must deal with sin and punish it But if God does not punish sin because of His mercy, then He would be unjust. How did God solve this problem? It is through the cross. You see, at the cross, God served His justice. He poured out the fullness of His wrath on His Son, Jesus Christ, and the punishment for sin was paid. At the cross, God extended His mercy. Christ received the fullness of God's judgment on our behalf, and we did not get the punishment that we deserve. At the cross, God poured out his grace, and you and I only deserve death, but God gave us what we do not deserve, and that is eternal life and every spiritual blessing in Christ. Friends, this is the great love by which our God loved us, and what more could you ask? God loved us so much, and he is our God who is rich in mercy and grace. Now let's continue to learn about this grace. Verse 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of your works, so that no one may boast. This beautiful verse is a concise summary of how a person gets saved. Here, Paul clearly points out that our salvation is all by God's grace. Our salvation is a gift that we do not deserve, yet God has freely given it to us. And there are two things about how we are not saved that Paul highlights. First, Paul said, we are not saved by ourselves. We are saved, but not of ourselves. We are not the ones who save ourselves, and it is only by God, by His grace, who saved us. Remember, we were dead and destined for destruction, and we were helpless and hopeless to save ourselves. Also, we are saved, but not due to the works that we have done. You see, our salvation is not the result of our effort, our ability, our intelligent choices, or religious acts of service on our part. In other words, salvation is not the reward for the good things we have done. Remember, we were disobedient, and everything that we do opposes God, and it is displeasing before Him. And for these two reasons, there is no room for boasting. We are saved, but not of ourselves, and we are saved not due to our works. None of us could claim that we have saved ourselves, and that we have worked and earned our salvation. Now, if salvation is not of ourselves nor by our work, how then were believers saved? Verse eight tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. You see, our salvation is God's free gift to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean to put our faith in Christ? To put your faith in Christ means to trust and obey him. It is trusting Jesus for your salvation versus your own effort. It is also obeying Christ by surrendering your life and submitting to His will. Now, here is the summary of Paul's message about how a person gets saved. Our salvation is not the result of our works, but it is by grace through faith. Our salvation is not of ourselves, but it is a gift from God. In other words, salvation is not by a person's own doing. Instead, it is a gift freely given by God to the undeserving. Salvation is not by a person's own doing. Instead, it is a gift freely given by God to the undeserving. Now, let's go to the next part or the second part of our after story. The Believer's Future. The Believer's Future. Verse 7 to 10. So that in the ages to come, he might show the boundless riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Why did God redeem us? Here, Paul tells God's ultimate purpose for saving us, for God to display the riches of his grace. And it will happen in the age to come. The age to come is the eternity we will experience in the new heavens and the new earth. And what will God do by then? Let's read again verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might what? He might show or display the boundless riches of his grace, Towards us in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is our future. God will never stop lavishing us with His boundless grace forever and ever. You and I will experience the fullness of God's abundant love throughout all eternity. And we will get to hold all of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And this promise is something that you and I can look forward to. So, friends, you may be in a difficult situation today. Perhaps you're afflicted physically or emotionally. Maybe you're overwhelmed by the burdens that you carry. Perhaps you're tired of following God and you're about to quit. I pray that you will not give up. Instead, put your hope in God, because this is the future that God has prepared for those of us in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse nine. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human mind has conceived the things God has prepared for those who love him. So may God help us. And here's the final reason why God saved us, for the believers to do good works. And this is not just for the future, but also for the present. Ephesians 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now the word workmanship in the Greek term is the word poiema. One commentator defined poema this way. Poema meant any work of art. It could mean a statue, a song, an architecture, a poem, or a painting. It conveys the idea of something artfully created. And isn't it amazing to think that we, as believers, are God's work of art? You see, God did not just save us from his wrath, but his plan is to make us into something beautiful out of us, and you and I are God's masterpieces in Christ. Think about it. Artworks are put on display for the world to see and admire. At the same time, these masterpieces point to their creator's talent, brilliance, and greatness. In the same way, God puts us on display to reflect God's image in us for the world to see and to bring honor to His name. You see, God gave us new life in Christ and made us as new creation so that we would put Him on display. His sacrificial love, His kindness and generosity, His faithfulness and justice and righteousness, and other godly characteristics. And when we reflect God's image in our relationship, in our family and school, in our workplaces and communities and areas of influence, when we reflect his image in these places, God is honored and glorified. Now, as believers and as God's works of art, how then we put God on display? Verse 10 tells us, through good works, Ephesians 2.10, the good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And what are these good works? Generally, it's living a life of obedience to God. And specifically, these are the good works included in the commands given in Ephesians chapter 4-6 to 6 and other related passages. Also, good works includes the opportunities that God brings our way to bless God and bless others. So let's be on the lookout for these opportunities every day. Perhaps it could be an opportunity to give a generous tip to grab drivers that deliver items to your home. A good work can be an occasion to share the gospel with your longtime friend whom you have met again recently. It could also be saying yes to an invitation to serve in ministry, or it could also be a time to help your children and connect with them despite your busy schedule. When this opportunity comes, don't say no immediately and reject it right away. Instead, discern if these moments are divine appointments from God for you to do good works that He has prepared for you. Now here's another thing that I want to highlight. Good works are essential, but good works are not the cause of salvation. Good works is not the requirement for salvation. However, good works are the result of salvation. Say it in another way, good works is not the root of the salvation, but the fruit of it. Good work is not the root, but the fruit of our salvation. Living a life of obedience to God through our good works is the evidence of our salvation in Christ. Good works is the evidence of our salvation in Christ. Remember what we've learned earlier. In our before story, we were disobedient children and rebellious sinners, and we followed the course of this world. We walk according to the prince of the power of the air and live following our own sinful nature. But now, God has called us believers to live a new life of obedience and walk a different path. Instead of following the way of this world, God calls us to obey our Lord Jesus Christ and follow His example and live according to His standard. Why? Because Jesus, our King, is the ultimate model for the new humanity that God is creating. Christ shows us the new way of being human that truly honors God and loves others. Now the question is, will you obey Jesus? And will you walk the path of good works that God has prepared for you? May God help us. As we close, let me give you these applications to reflect on. First, for those of you who are not yet followers of Christ, receive God's gift of salvation. Friends, if you are not yet in Christ, this condition is your present. You're dead. You're dead in your sins. You're disobedient and you're destined for God's wrath. But God is giving you a chance. He gave His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins and my sins, on our behalf, and Christ paid the penalty of our sins to give us eternal life. The question is, would you entrust your life in Christ and follow him and receive that eternal life from God? Next, for those of us who are already followers of Jesus, remember and appreciate what God has given you. Recall your past. You were dead, you were disobedient, and destined for destruction. But God, out of his rich mercy and great love, made you alive and gave you the abundant life in Christ. Remember God's great gift to you and give thanks to him in worship. Third, rest secured in your identity in Christ. If you're doubting God's love because of your trials and difficulties, don't be discouraged. God loves you and he has graciously blessed you. Amid your suffering, endure and don't forget who you are in Christ. Look forward to the reward that you will receive When you have overcome. Romans 8 32 tells us, he who did not spare his own son, Christ Jesus, but delivered him over for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And finally, praise God and put him on display through good works. God has given us the best gift that he could have given through the Lord Jesus Christ, so praise and honor him. Praise and honor him with your lips for His love, His goodness, and faithfulness. Also, put God on display with your life by walking in the way of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do the good works that reflect God's character as you relate with your spouse, your children, and your coworkers. With God's help, be salt and light in the places where God has put you. Receive God's gift of salvation. Remember and appreciate what God has given. Rest secured in your identity in Christ we praise God and put Him on display for good works. Brothers and sisters, remember our lesson for today. We were dead in our sins and destined for destruction, but our merciful and loving God saved us by His grace and made us alive in Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your gracious love, for Your richness of mercy, for your compassion, for your loving kindness and faithfulness. Lord, words cannot express how much, how much overwhelming it is to feel and to, to sense, Lord God, who are we that you are mindful of us and who are we that you cared for us. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us, help us to fully understand the depth, the length, the width, the height of your love and always Assure us of your promise that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Father, thank you so much for you have turned around our lives. We were dead and you've made us alive. We were children of wrath, but you adopted us in your family. We were destined for destruction, but you have crowned us with glory and honor through Christ. And you have seated us with him to rule over all creation and eventually to inherit the new heavens and the new earth and to be part of your inheritance, Lord. Thank you, Father, for your love. As we continue to reflect and study the message of Ephesians, help us to fully understand who you are, your love for us, and the purpose of your will. Father, forgive us for many times that we have think so much of, uh, so little, Lord God, of, of our lives, that we have failed to see your great plan for us. Father, thank you for this message in Ephesians, and help us to open our perspective to see our lives either with a higher view and help us to fully become alive in Christ. Help us to walk the path that Christ has set for us to follow Him wholeheartedly, to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. For those of us who are discouraged, who feel defeated, we ask, O oh Lord, that you encourage us, grant us your peace, give us your healing, encourage us, empower us, O oh God, surround us with people who would Uh, Encourage us and walk with us during this difficult time in our journey. Enable us to experience your presence. Father, help us, Lord, to appreciate the gift of your blessing. And as we fully understand our blessing, may our lives be a blessing to others. Help us to be salt and light in the places where you have put us in. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to worship you once more, to hear from your word. In everything, may our lives be glorifying to you. Help us to live a life that reflects you and that reflects Christ our Lord, our King. Thank you, Lord. We commit to you this day and on all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.